You are now listening to the Unshakable Health Podcast with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. All right, such a pleasure to be back with you guys and gals. It's been an amazing week. I got the just blessed opportunity to record a podcast with a very special person who's been on a journey to not only take control of his health, but to be able to share with the world all the lessons he's learned, which have really been astounding from his background in engineering, where they use often this root cause analysis, really digging deep, keep asking questions, never settling for that first thing that pops up, just keep asking the questions. And he was able to literally solve his health dilemma in the matter of a couple of weeks when he went to three different doctors that just couldn't really give him the answer. And so I love this conversation. He's an amazing individual. He's the co-author of a book, Eat Rich, Live Long, and I'm going to get into it with him in just a second. And while you're just just jonesing to hear this interview, I just want to thank you again for always listening and for sharing and for liking. And, and really, if you do a review, that's what really tips the balance in our favor to get this super important information out there. So if you haven't left a review already, please, please, please do that. Hop on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, what have you. Please drop a review, actually screenshot it and send it to me on Instagram at DR for Dr. Thomas Hemingway at DR Thomas Hemingway. Screenshot that before you click submit your typed review. It doesn't have to be long, but just tell me what you're loving. Tell me what you're learning. Just keep the feedback coming and that will get this podcast out to more people. We can change more lives. We can help so many more. So please, please, please do that. And I will give you a free week in the Thrive community, which is where you guys are VIPs. You get to participate in discussions, in threads, in even live calls that I do every month. It's an amazing group. It's so supportive. We're all on this journey together. So please hop on over there to Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Drop a review. Screenshot that to me, Dr. Thomas Hemingway on Insta. I'd be so grateful. Also, if you hop on over to my website, which is thomashemingway.com, I would love for you to reach out to me there. I have all my different uh, links for my book that's upcoming, which is, oh, it's just been such a joy to work on this for you. I've been working on it just uh, tirelessly to get that best product out to you in the coming months, thepreventablebook.com. There's a link to that on my webpage. Please, please, please sign up to get the announcements with respect to that. I'll do a couple of in-person book launch events. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait to share with you my preventable book because it's going to change the world. I have the goal to save a hundred million lives and I need you to help me do it, to share this message. So thepreventablebook.com or just reach out to me on thomashemingway.com or on Insta at dr for Dr. Thomas Hemingway, and I would love to hear from you. So without further ado, we're going to get into this episode with none other than Ivor Cummins, who is an astounding researcher. Uh, I'm just so impressed with this guy. I've been following him for quite some time. He's been on this journey for over a decade to uncover all this data that's really been able to not only change his life, but many, many others. So thanks in advance to him for sharing with us this hour-long episode of just uh, awesomeness, so much insight, so many practical steps. So we're going to get into it. So on today's podcast, we have a very special guest, somebody that uh, really is making a big difference in the health and wellness sphere that I've been following for quite a long time. I know he's been on his personal journey at least 10 years, if not more, and then in his health and, and really just 
the, the research-backed pursuits that he's so good at deciphering data and looking at stuff from not only sort of the 35,000-foot view, but really just helping us to apply some of these conundrums that come out, like what's the deal with fat and cholesterol and all these kinds of things. And I have none other than Ivor Cummins, who's author of the book, Eat Rich, Live Long with Dr. Gerber. And he's, he's just a great guy. And I really can't wait for this interview. It's going to be so much fun. And he's got so much to add in this sphere. So I'm going to let Ivor take it away. Welcome. Welcome, Ivor. Hey, thanks a lot, Thomas. Great to be here. <laughs> oh, man, such a pleasure. And I, you know, I, I'd love you to just start out a little bit with just uh, who is Ivor Cummins? How did you get into this space? Being an engineer by your official training, how did you get into this whole health and wellness and and lipids, and that doesn't seem like those two would naturally intersect. Maybe just give us a, a quick rundown of how you got to where you are, maybe a little bit of your personal journey, and then sort of your scientific journey. Yeah, okay, Thomas, I'll try not to be uh, too long-winded. So I came out with a biochemical engineering degree in 1990. I then spent around 25 plus years in corporates, in complex problem solving primarily, medical device, FDA regulated, and then high volume devices. And basically, I just moved quickly up the corporate ladder to master technologists. And I also became a technical people manager, large teams, primarily focusing on complex interacting problem solving, which is kind of an exclusive enough area to specialize in. But it was just my innate nature. I was always obsessed with the technical and always a root cause or problem solver. But the switch to uh, the medical and health was around 2012, got a few blood tests. They were standard routine. There was no special reason for them. And I was really high on three measures, uh, a liver enzyme, GGT, and uh, serum ferritin, the iron loading in the blood, uh, and cholesterol. My cholesterol was high. And I noticed that while the cholesterol was really high, the other two were really, really way outside the normal population range. So I quizzed the doctor because I'm used to, for decades, being brought in in an emergency into a problem-solving team that's not finding their way, a lot of money being lost, and I'm brought in. So I always grill the leaders, uh, the experts in this problem, and I find out the key questions and their answers uh, to start leading the team. So I asked the doctor straight away, you know, what are the implications of these high readings in terms of morbidity or mortality risk? And what are the things that would be perhaps root causes? So what can I change to, to fix them? Obvious questions to an expert, right? This is a doctor, an expert in standard blood tests. Has to be. And I got answers which I clearly perceived, you know, the person wasn't sure. So I went to another doctor, more senior person, and pretty much the same result. So now I'm getting really suspicious. I don't know what's going on, but I know that the experts should know straight away those two answers with a list of root causes and, and what the you know potential impacts are. They didn't. And then I went to a professor of medicine, a family connection, and didn't do much better. So then I realized, Thomas, there's something <laughs> huge here. I don't know what it is, but I know it's huge because if the experts in an arena fail to be able to answer questions on basic metrics of their expertise area. There's something huge there. I just don't know what it is. So I went back to my biochemical roots. I had a corporate log on to ResearchGate. I had PubMed access. And I simply followed those three metrics and did my classic root cause. 
So I didn't wander all over the place. I went on a rootless path of whatever data and analysis I do on scores of papers. Uh, I would then take the most likely direction that needs to be gone because this is what I've done for decades. And long story short, a few weeks of obsessive research because I had five kids and I knew these, I knew within a day or two how serious these things were, except for cholesterol, but the other two. And uh, within a couple of weeks, I had inexorably come to, I was eating too much carbohydrate. And to be honest, there was almost no doubt in my mind, I, I, not to be arrogant, I had no one to impress. I didn't even know there was a low carb movement out there. I thought I was discovering all this. I was excited. And um, it was just clear as day. So I cut out all the potatoes, the rice. The, I was drinking fruit juices because, you know, five a day. I thought that was a oh great way God. to get five. A, yeah. And of course, my liver was screaming. I didn't know. So I cut out everything um, and I ended up eating meat, fish, eggs and vegetables, just real food. And I switched from vegetable oils to butter because I began to find out that vegetable oils were, were a completely unnatural thing to be taking. I had no idea. I thought they were healthy before that. And I just made all those changes. And long story short, uh, my corporation, all the senior management and, and the staff, the engineers, they noticed within weeks something enormous was happening or the opposite of enormous. Uh, my weight began to fall off. So I'd been overweight for, around, for most of my adult life maybe overweight by 30, 35 pounds. Uh, I lost that in nine weeks. So I just became completely slim, transformed. And I was not even targeting weight loss. That's the amazing thing, Thomas. I was only uh, fixated with the ferritin, the GGT, uh, and the cholesterol I discovered quite quickly was kind of nonsense. But the other two, uh, my blood's utterly transformed. So I got the most beautiful blood panel after nine weeks only. In fact. After six weeks, I retested and they were already dramatically better. And nine weeks, they were just pretty much perfect. So that was how I got into it. That's incredible. What, what did your doctor or doctor sound like you, you, you had three different people look at your blood work? What did they think with that uh, transformation? Were they just scratching their heads? And I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious as a physician myself. Well, one, the first one I didn't actually go back to. Uh, okay. for no, no particular reason, a uh, very nice doctor. Uh, but I just never ended up circling back there because in those nine weeks, I discovered from someone in work that there was a doctor I had to talk to. And it turned out to be Dr. Neville Wilson, uh, who was in Ireland, but he was a decorated Air Force officer originally in South Africa. He became a doctor and a bush surgeon, and he's been a surgeon and doctor on five continents. And he ended up in Ireland. And someone told me, I think that doctor knows all about what you're saying, that fat is good and carb is bad. So I went to him and I actually ended up continuing with him. Uh, and he was 30 years a high fat doctor. So amazing individual. But I did uh, with the second doctor was connected through my family. He admitted to me that he was wondering for 20 or 30 years, he was wondering why ferritin was going up steadily in men mainly. And he thought it might be hemochromatosis, but every time he tested them, nearly always they did not have this high iron, uh, you know, genetic type problem. And he couldn't understand it. So he said to me, you finally answered the question. A ferritin is a marker for metabolic syndrome. And I was able to explain, but he wasn't even sure what metabolic syndrome was, but I explained it to him in insulin resistance. And he found it fascinating and he wasn't in any way embarrassed. He just said, look, we, we don't, 
we don't really get educated in that stuff. It's just the way it is. And the very senior medical professional I met months later, and I told him about insulin resistance. And when I told him about insulin resistance, he couldn't understand how insulin could be a cause for, for metabolic issues and chronic disease. He literally thought it, it, was, it was more a medication for type 1 diabetics. And he couldn't understand how I was saying a medication will somehow cause chronic disease. So that's how little he knew. But a few months later, after I told him about cholesterol not being the issue and insulin being the real problem, which disturbs cholesterol, uh, I asked him how things were going. And he said, Ivor, he said, we've been duped for decades. And that was his only comment. So he was smart <laughs> enough to know not only had they not been educated in the important things as it happened, but he knew there was some malice involved too, that it wasn't a coincidence that the doctors were never educated in what is important. <laughs> and they were all sent off on, you know, a wild goose chase after cholesterol. He knew there was an industry involvement in that uh, pretty much. And he was correct. Wow. Now, what, what, what an interesting story. And I haven't heard you quite tell it that way. So thank you so much for that. And I, I, I'm coming from that similar, you know, I would say upbringing, if you will, in the medical you know, sciences where I was taught about cholesterol and we focused on LDL, that's bad, you know, cholesterol. And, but hey, we have this treatment, right? It ends in statin. And now there's 10 of them and they're billion dollar, you know, drugs, each of them. And they are one of the top, probably five, if not second or, you know, one of the top selling drugs in the world. And a lot of us just don't even question it, especially physicians. And it's, it's really sad. And, and before maybe we even talk about any of the statins and what they do or don't do, but I think even more interesting is backing up the clock a little bit to, you know, what kind of started the conundrum in the first place, because a hundred years ago, there was nearly zero or very little heart disease. And now it's the leading cause of death, basically in every country in the world. It's certainly in the U.S. and certainly in the developed countries. And it's, it's still to this day, sadly, even with all the things that you and I both know, it's still the number one killer. So how did we get here from your perspective? Yeah, well, that, that kind of came out over the first, the first few months of my research. I probably exceeded a thousand papers on my hard drive because I was downloading them all and I was naughtily using Sci-Hub, you know, to get the ones yeah. that were not on the system. But anyway... Uh, but now I have probably two and a half thousand plus papers. So the full story is all there, but there's complexities. But yeah, around 100 years ago, th there were almost no cardiologists. I mean, at the turn of the century, heart disease was something no one bothered with because it just wasn't really an issue, an apparent issue, even though it's very clear symptoms uh, and deaths from heart disease are, are, are unmistakable. No one really focused on it. So what I always simplify it uh, for people is the devil's triad. So what is the devil's triad? If you want to keep things super simple, it's sugar, refined grains, particularly refined wheat, refined carbohydrates. Uh, so sugar, refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils, the factory seed oils that have taken over the world. And the problem with the devil's triad is it's not just like, you know, people have some or other of these things. Most of the supermarket or the store now is ultra processed food. It's just a reality. Yeah. And the meat, fish and eggs and the vegetables are around the outside and the whole center is ultra processed food. 
And ultra processed food now in the UK, and it's America's worse, but the British Medical Journal published several years ago that it now makes up well over 50% of calories eaten in the United Kingdom in, in England are ultra processed foods. So it's over yeah, 50, half of what goes in. Yeah, it's 59 yeah. or almost 60% in the US. It's horrible. It's, and, and these are, like you said, these are not just processed foods, it's highly processed foods. I, I don't even call this food. It's food-like substances. Anyway, keep going. That's, it's just incredible. <laughs> well, well, that's it. And the irony is, of course, I'm not sure it's even an irony, ultra processed food is made up overwhelmingly its content is the devil's triad. It's refined grains and sugars, of course, for taste, and seed oils. And the reason, one of the reasons is shelf life, this toxic mix gives shelf life, and also it's super cheap. So vegetable oils are so cheap per calorie, they're, they're almost, they're basement level, they cost next to nothing. And of course, refined grains and sugars are all subsidized and they cost next to nothing. So we know why, and also they're hyper palatable. They drive obesity, which drives hunger, which drives more consumption. And then all of the disease that results from them is what creates the chronic disease that gives the market for pharmaceuticals, antihypertensive, statin drugs, yada, yada, yada. So it's like the two most powerful industries in the world. There's no conspiracy theory. It's just business. I always explain, it's just business. Pharmaceutical and food industry are two of the most powerful and most lobbying uh, businesses in, on the planet. And it's in their intense interest. In fact, it's an imperative for quarterly revenues and growth that the devil's triad remains and becomes more of the staple of humanity. It, it's literally a business imperative. So of course they have invested over decades in studies and science, right? where the outcome they wanted was clear and they funded, even when they're supposedly hands off the research team, the funding is put out and the desire is clear. And then the science tends to go that way to that, to that conclusion that's desired. Otherwise you don't get any funding. Um, and, and that's kind of why we ended up here largely uh, and why anything that makes sense or is logical or biochemically appropriate or reasonable, it just never hits the media because it's a threat to a business imperative, one of the biggest business imperatives on our planet. Yeah, no, so true. And it I love how you said that. It's not, it's not conspiracy theory, it's just business. Like I my son, um, my oldest son who's in college now, used to work at a restaurant. And this was a restaurant that I viewed as healthy home cooking. Like every everything they made was from scratch. Yet he, after working there a few months, he's like, Dad don't eat this food. It's terrible. We use, you know, the lowest quality vegetable oils and this like fake butter stuff that's got 50 ingredients, lots of hydrogenated oils, and they spread it on the grills before they throw any food on there. Although the food comes out looking great and it's, it's stuff you recognize. It's vegetables and meat and things like that. But he's like, dad, don't eat at this place anymore. It's crazy. And, you know, they have a fryer with vegetable oil, of course, because the seed oils are, like you said, they're literally dirt cheap. I mean, they're so inexpensive. You can buy gallons of this stuff for a couple of dollars and they just pour it into their fryers because it's economics. It's just cost effective. And they never clean these things. I mean, talk about the, you know, not only what happens with the high heat, but forget the fact that they almost never clean these things and they just add more. And 
I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Even in the best establishments that you thought were the quote unquote safe ones, like this one I thought was always great home cooking. And he's like, don't eat there. Don't eat. Yeah. And that's, oh that's a key gosh. point. And yeah, Dr. Mike Eads made that point as well, that he began after being for decades, you know, protein power, Dr. Michael Eads, he, um, he began to suspect that the vegetable oils may be a much bigger part of the problem than he thought. He was always perceiving it as refined carbs and sugars. But in the last few years, he's given some amazing lectures on the problems of the vegetable oils. But it's so true. He said that one of the reasons he travels a lot, he thinks that remaining struggles he has with weight are probably relating to eating out in restaurants uh, very much. And exactly the problem you said. And we had a local restaurant that I thought was really healthy. And I went around the back to park once because they gave you parking vouchers. And <laughs> what was out the back? Only these, you know, I don't know, 20 or five, five gallon drums, empty drums of, of vegetable oil. I mean, there was literally a big pile of them at the back. They were being stored to be, be recycled. And that's it. They're going through the stuff. Yeah, no, it's it's so challenging. I think uh, one of the few places in the world that I've had less challenges is a lot of the European countries. In um, I was just in Portugal, and they I couldn't even find anything other than extra virgin olive oil when I would go shopping, and I would query the chefs and things, and they that's all they use. And you know, it's no wonder that you know the so-called uh, well, I don't even want to mention it because the guy who did the study, right, the country study, he was looking for one thing to prove his hypothesis, which, which you and I both know was wrong. But the Mediterranean diet, if you will, these guys, I mean, they're eating the oils that they eat are the extra virgin, almost zero processing, right? It's just pressing the olive, squeezing the oil out. You're not doing high heat, high pressure, you know, all kinds of solvents and bleach and all this kinds of stuff that goes into the seed oil or vegetable oil processing. And so it's way more natural. It's, it's doesn't involve all these you know, other chemical components and the steps that, that go on through the production. And those, you know, generally speaking, I mean, when you walk around in those countries, you don't see every other person being obese or overweight. You just don't see it as often. It's yeah. getting, it's getting a little bit worse over the years because it incorporated a lot of our sad, sad diet and sad habits over here. But uh, I mean, by and large, it's, it's much different uh, because they're really not using the vegetable oils or the seed oils to the degree that I think we do um, in many, many parts of the world. Maybe tell us a little bit from your perspective. Um, uh, why are they so dang bad, these seed oils? Um, and, and what's really going on? I think you understand the chemistry better than most of us in the molecular biology of why they're so bad, but maybe you can just give us your take on it. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's still being debated quite vigorously as to how bad they are. And we have proponents of, you know, the vegetable oils being uh, worse than carbohydrates and sugars like Tucker Goodrich and others who have done amazing research and they, they make a case. And then we have people, and I'm more in this camp that I view, if you cut out refined carbohydrates and sugars and eat real food, maybe some vegetable oils, you could tolerate them. So it's hard to answer that question for sure, which is worse. But the vegetable oils, the two primary vectors, one are that they're excessive omega-6. And essentially, the omega-6, essentially essential fatty acids, it's widely accepted that humans got well less than 1% of calories from omega-6 and omega-3, the fish oils. And they were called the essentials because we can't 
exactly manufacture them. So we had to get them in the diet, a bit like vitamin C. But, but they're signaling molecules, as Professor Jeff Volokh memorably said in San Diego once uh, in 2016, they're not intended for, for fuel. They're signaling molecules. They make up cell membranes. They're easily oxidized. They're, they're part of the control system of the body. You do need them. They're essential, both, but, but they're not there to be burned as fuel. But what problem have we got now? For decades, we've gone up to 10, 12, 14% of calories from these omega-6 vegetable oils, which is crazy. There's rat studies from the 1990s. I have many of them on my hard drive. We put them in our book, Eat Rich, Live Long. And they basically showed that up to 3 or 4%, there was an increase in carcinogenesis and other physiological problems with ramping up omega-6, up to 3 or 4% of calories. But one paper was really, really interesting. It indicated from epidemiology that after, or actually from, sorry, rat experiments, that after 3 or 4%, the extra problems um, tailed off and flattened. And they made the point that if your population is at around 10 plus or minus 3% of these omega-6 fatty acids, you won't see much difference between the people at 13 and the people at seven because there's a plateau. And they made the point that you, you would have to look at people eating ancestral 1%, compare them to someone eating five, six, seven, eight, 10% to see a difference. And it explained why the epidemiological studies don't really show much of a signal for seed oils because everyone is up in the danger zone, the plateau. Yeah. yeah. So, and we've been up there the for because... <laughs> so long. Very interesting. But those studies all came out in the late 90s. And then suddenly in the literature, they stopped. Now, don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I'd say, like Mary Enig, the famous researcher uh, or infamous, who was an expert in these types of fats and all fat molecules, she was raising this issue we're talking about back in, I think, the 90s. And she lost her job, basically, and, and she was just destroyed by industry because the whole industry now was making an absolute fortune. The researchers were apparently telling them to replace healthy fats from meat, fish, and eggs with these vegetable oils. And the vegetable oils were super cheap with long shelf life. So industry became utterly in love with, with them. And any researcher who called a, a question, basically their career was destroyed like Mary Enig. But also I'd say those studies in the 90s showing these problems and raising an issue, uh, very quickly the funding would have disappeared from those teams. So it's just interesting in the 90s, they just stopped because the world was saying these are heart healthy vegetable oils that can save your heart. There's no downsides. It's great. So any researcher who questioned that, they're gone. You know, we saw it with Yudkin and sugar, career destroyed, absolutely, you know, vilified, simply because he correctly said the problem isn't really fat and cholesterol. The problem is insulin and sugar. And he was correct. We know that. But his career was destroyed. So this yeah. is the challenge. <laughs> now, such an interesting, uh, it, you can't, and you can't make this stuff up. I mean, the, the way that it plays out, it's, it's, I think the more, you know, I, I, sadly, I get surprised still to this day. I mean, coming from Western medicine, I probably shouldn't be surprised knowing that, you know, the process I was there, I was, 
in the pharmacology class where they talked about the drugs that lower cholesterol and they talked about how LDL was the only important marker or one of the most important markers, let's just say. And, you know, you so astutely showed that, you know, the way that research is done and funded and, and even squashed and stymied with, with those that are naysayers. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it, it exists. We can't deny that. <laughs> well, but, yeah. And the thing is, to be honest, Thomas, I suppose, yes, it exists. There's no question about that. And people accept that, you know, lobbying revolving door between FDA and pharmaceutical companies and food industry. They accept that it exists, but they don't accept how enormous it is and how it's actually the standard. So like the business now has such a grip that that corruption is the norm and it's technically not breaking law. It's not like briefcases of money are slid under desks. It's technically legal. All they're doing yeah. is pouring money at the right researchers and vilifying the wrong ones. But there's no theoretical illegality. And that's why they romp home and, and they just set the whole agenda. Uh, but LDL, I could not believe in the first couple of weeks, way back in 2012, when I was searching this, I literally could not believe what I was seeing because I was independently following a research path. I didn't care about cholesterol. I didn't care about carb or fat. All I wanted was the answer for me because I had five kids and I just yeah. wanted the root cause and I could fix it, which I did, of course. But I cannot believe what I was seeing. And I, I actually made a directory. I still have it dated 2012. I have masses of directories uh, categorized with all the scientific papers. But I made a directory, fat is bad. I just called it fat is bad. And I decided I'm going to put everything in there that's convincing that actually says I'm wrong on this because I got to do that as a professional problem solver. Yeah. I've got to focus on challenging my own hypothesis as per professor Karl Popper, you know, the asymmetry of proof, you must solve the problem by always challenging your favorite hypotheses and making sure they don't fail. It's the only way it's not our researchers do, but Anyway, it's the only true way. And that directory got a couple of papers I, I put in it. Um, and even they were flawed. And when I went back to them, they had no proof, you know. So it was just interesting to realize over the first few weeks, I'm actually not incorrect. The whole system is rotten to its very core on cholesterol, fat, and carb. And I was astonished. I mean, I pinched myself moments for the first month. I found it so hard to believe. And I be, I just thought, I can't be right here. But as yeah. it turned out, I was. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the perpetuity of it, I think, is the most surprising because it's still being, at least as far as I know, still being taught. And it's, it's super sad because, I mean, if you just follow, I, I hate to use the expression, follow the money, but some of the original biggest supporters of the AHA or American Heart Association were Procter and Gamble, the makers of many of these seed oils and Crisco and vegetable oils and all these kinds of things. And, and nobody seems to care. It's just, it's surprising and astounding. There's, I'm sure you've read Nina Teichholz's book, The Big, Big Fat Surprise from several years back. I thought she did a wonderful <laughs> job going Beautiful. back into the history. And she dug up some of these papers that were hidden or stymied or, or they tried to not, you know, Getting, you know, it was just, it was crazy how they will prevent the spread of data when it doesn't agree with their hypothesis. And she did some great investigative yeah. work and uh, I applaud her for her efforts. But I think you mentioned something really interesting um, 
with respect to your personal journey, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this, is that you found, and rightly so, you found that it wasn't the fat per se, it was insulin, it was the highly processed sugars, you know, the devil's, I love how you said the devil's triangle, <laughs> highly processed sugars and grains, and of course, the seed oils. Well, tell us a little bit about insulin and how that plays in and, and what sort of your take home for the insulin piece is. Yeah, sure, Thomas. Oh, and just a quick word. Nina is a good friend. She's fantastic. I agree totally. And I always just mentioned Gary Taubes as well, which she acknowledges yeah. that good calories, bad calories a few years before caused the storm. And then she took the story and delved even deeper and made a fantastic story of it. But great book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I originally, the reason I came upon insulin very quickly, and people think, you couldn't have worked this all out yourself in a few weeks, but they, they just miss. I'm 30 years in complex problem solving, and, and that counts. And I started off as highly naturally attuned to that kind of you know, skill set and talent. And I spent decades honing it at a high level in corporate. So not to blow my trumpet, but it's utterly different. Someone like me pursuing a problem with my background and just someone else doing it. No disrespect to anyone, but I'm I, it's my whole career. So that's why. But very quickly, of course, I hit insulin because very quickly I hit metabolic syndrome because, you know, I had the low HDL. I had the highish triglycerides. And when I was pursuing this and then serum ferritin was high and I discovered the metabolic syndrome. And then I actually made a prediction. Uh, my wife was wondering why I was so obsessed with this, but I made a prediction I said to myself after around two and a half weeks, I think it was, I said, okay, I think I've got this tiger by the tail. It's metabolic syndrome is the problem, which is insulin resistance syndrome. So that's the insulin connection. Yeah. Metabolic syndrome is a, it's an actually a deceptive and misleading name. It's the insulin resistance syndrome or hyperinsulinemia syndrome. It's the center of modern chronic disease. So metabolic syndrome is huge. I know this, but from all of my triangulation, because I triangulate in problem solving, I'm always looking at all the different points and disparities in the problem and watching for incongruities, watching for exceptions, watching for the exception that may prove a rule or disprove. So I began to see that serum ferritin had to be a marker for metabolic syndrome, but I had not found any papers saying that. And then one evening, it was a Tuesday evening, and it was a eureka moment, and my wife remembers it. I actually came running out of my sitting room, which was piled up with papers, because I used to print out a lot of the scientific papers so I could old-fashioned underline them and catalog them as well as soft copy. I ran out of the room kind of basically shouting. And she said, what's going on? And I says, I got it. I said, I got it licked, and I knew I had. And the reason was I found a paper and the title, it was Asian paper, I think. The title was essentially why serum ferritin should be the sixth marker for metabolic syndrome, because we know there's five. The paper went through it, and I said, that's it. I predicted that as being something that had to be true, and it was. And then I found more publications. So then I knew I was correct, and that's why when I switched the diet, I, I knew it was going to work. But insulin resistance syndrome is the center. Now, some people criticize and they say, oh, you know, one ring to rule them all. You're, you're saying insulin is everything. Insulin signaling is not everything. In, in a complex, you know, physiologic 
machine, like a human. Obviously, there isn't one cause, but it's so big that if you treated it as the only thing to worry about, you do better than 99% of people around you. So it's the Pareto principle. Yeah. If you, and if you focused on lowering your insulin and lowering your leptin, because leptin resistance is almost synonymous, uh, hypertension would collapse generally and cholesterol ratios would go back to a good place. Your HDL would rise. Um, your small dense LDL and, and, and oxidized LDL would lower. Uh, your particle count generally will lower. All of these things that we all talk about, if you fix the insulin signaling system, they'll all fall into line generally, but it's not 100% of it. But my best example I give to people, and this came up many years later, I think it was a, a NIH or a, an American uh, statistics study in 2016. And what they came out with, this is government data, not me. So I say insulin resistance syndrome is the root of modern chronic disease, the big Pareto item. So you say, how many people have it? The study showed that 64% of over 45s adults in America have either pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. Now, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, they're the same thing. It's an arbitrary threshold. So they are admitting 64% of Americans have the pathology that's the primary cause of heart disease and most chronic disease, 64%. And if you use insulin measures, as myself and Dr. Gerber and many others have gone through many times, if you use insulin measurement, which they do not, you will find another probably 10% at least. Yeah. So we're facing the reality that three quarters of Americans over 45 now have insulin resistance syndrome which is the primary driver of chronic disease. So it's an absurdity. Imagine you went in and said, we've got a problem with X, Y, Z, and W. And you know the primary driver from myriad papers is this thing we call insulin resistance. And then you admit that, well, 75% of the parts in our production line have it. And you say, well, why aren't you fixing it? Yeah, well, we're kind of more interested in cholesterol. It's just, it's just insane. It's insane. It's, it's completely insane. When I'm curious because, you know, years back, I asked my primary care physician and I'm, I'm turning 50 next year. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not 40 anymore, but I, I wanted to get my insulin level checked and he wouldn't do it. I had to literally, because I'm a physician, he's a physician, he did it, but it was more of an acquiescence. It wasn't that he wanted to do it. He told me that was stupid, that why are we wasting tax, yeah, whatever. I'm like, this is my money. I'll pay for it out of pocket, whatever. If insurance doesn't cover it, I don't care. Get the dang insulin level. But he, he kept telling me what most doctors say to people, oh, your fasting glucose is okay. Or it's less than some arbitrary value, 98 or whatever, you know, your lab says is quote unquote normal, which is a whole problem in and of itself. You and I could talk about this and statistically what's normal. Well, if you take the averages, you know, we don't want to be average, right? We don't want to be like those 75% that you're, you're telling us that have insulin resistance, right? And so how hard yeah. was it for you to get your insulin level measured? Or do you still have to fight this battle when you, when you go and get your testing? Probably not anymore, but. Well, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I know we mentioned before the pod, we talked about what I'm doing now, but that happens to dovetail or segue beautifully. So a couple of months ago, something I'd intended to do for around four or five years, but I was just too busy. 
I organized the first insulin event in Ireland and open to the public. We had around 70 people came and basically I had three doctors there with the world's first uh, pinprick instant insulin measuring equipment. They had three decks. It's called Meterbolic. So it's a European company and I'm good friends with the CEO, Eric, who was a, a medical doctor originally and then got into entrepreneurial stuff. But long story short, we insulin tested 70 people that day and we did a dozen of them. We did one hour post-glucose insulins, you know, 75 gram yeah. glucose. Do the, we did it all. And I gave talks um, all day to keep people entertained uh, in the main hall while they're all going through the testing rota. And I also showed video talks from pals like Dr. Arthur Agatston, you know, the inventor of the Agatston score, the algorithm for coronary calcium. And I showed videos of William Davis, MD, another good pal. So I, oh, I mixed cool. my lectures on all the science and, and these great, great uh, doctors and scientists. And we tested people all day. So it's changing, but you're right. Most doctors, like I said, that professor I referred to, when I told him insulin was at the heart of chronic disease, he said, like, you know, he thought that's a medication for type one diabetics. That's how bad it is. So of course yeah. they refused. Wow. The, the sinister side to it, Thomas, is that the business has largely known for decades that insulin resistance, et cetera, is the big problem. And the cholesterol is kind of being wagged by, by insulin resistance. And they kind of know that at, at strategic levels. So there's been a careful effort to make sure that it's frowned upon to look too much at insulin. I mean, for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, so yeah. again, no conspiracy theory, but it's not an accident. It's ignorance true, but the whole education system of doctors is set up and continues to be such that it's never emphasized. So that's yeah. why you experienced like you did. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. And, and it's, it's super sad, I think, in, in a number of ways, right? Heart disease continues present day 2022 to be the number one killer, right? We know it's yeah. largely 90 plus percent preventable, right? And we, we have this knowledge we have, you know, and, and it's not being shared in the way that it should be. And right now, especially in the U.S., I can speak to, I mean, our GDP, we have a tremendous amount of money, billion, trillion, I mean, so many dollars being spent, one out of, depending on what you look at, one out of every $3 on healthcare. And yeah. if we didn't have this issue because we paid attention to insulin and we paid attention to what you said at the very beginning, avoid the devil's triad, the processed grains, sugars, and the seed oils, if we avoided those three things and just ate real food, I mean, literally our heart disease numbers would plummet, our spending on healthcare would plummet. Don't we care about this kind of stuff? It's crazy. Nobody seems to care. It's, it's insane, no one cares. but I think you... <laughs> but you remember, Thomas, the biggest industries on the planet with enormous uh, influence beyond any politicians or any medical group enormous influence what you just described would be absolutely beyond a disaster for them pharma and food industry it would be catastrophic i mean literally half of the companies would close within a year or two it would be it would be absolutely shocking and as dr ron rosedale i interviewed him on on covid risk back in april 2020 like that was the very start of early COVID. on yeah yeah he basically said Insulin resistance and leptin resistance. 
That's the Pareto line share of susceptibility to COVID. And he explained why, because immune system function is utterly entwined. Leptin is actually a cytokine. So on myriad levels, the immune system functionality, and it's been published on for decades, is inexorably intertwined uh, with insulin and leptin resistance problems. And he just said, I, I made the comment that the irony is, um, Ron, I said, if tomorrow morning magically, you know, as this thing is starting this COVID problem, if magically tomorrow morning, all the food disappeared except meat, fish, and eggs and vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower. Yeah. If that happened within a week, the risk and the impact of this disease that's hitting us now would collapse. I mean, factor of five, factor of 10. And he said, Ivor, I'll have to correct you there. He said, it's not within a week, within a day. Because a day after switching off the devil's triad, and if you just started eating meat or fish or eggs or broccoli, if you just ate that, within a day, someone who is afflicted with insulin resistance, their insulin will literally tumble downwards and their leptin. Not that they're fixed. They still have a lot of metabolic yeah. issues that take time to resolve. And some people, even if they fix their diet, their diabetes is persistent and in in transigent or whatever but it was true within 12 24 hours you will see your bloods transform within yeah. a day yeah what what a, what a beautiful thing and we have that power within us to make those yeah. changes if 75 percent of us or or you know the current number that everybody likes to quote is 88 percent are metabolic metabolically unhealthy if if we just did that simple thing, yeah, right? We avoided it. the devil's triad of the triangle, those three things, highly processed grains and sugars, and of course the seed oils, and just ate real food. Like if we did that one thing, our risk of all of these illnesses, heart disease, of course, and, and many of the others, cancers, and of course, diabetes and obesity, all that would just plummet. And yeah. so what what is your what is your take home beyond that really important, so profound yet simple? A thing that we can do. What what else can we do? You've been doing this a while. What what else do you feel like we can do? Yeah. Okay. So eat rich, live long. I or last year, several years after publishing it, I went through it for an exercise. I was kind of going through it um, for some review, and I realized I, very pleasantly. And again, I'm not blowing a trumpet here, but I realized <laughs> we myself and Dr. Gerber didn't need to change anything in it. I kind of expected when I went back to find stuff I'd wince at or at least say, "Ooh." Shouldn't have said that. Nothing. Yeah. Now, you might add wow. in a couple of extra things. Yeah. I mean, I would have added in, you know, microbiome and, and gut health. I've learned a lot yeah. from Dr. William yeah. Davis, Sweet Belly. I would have added in more of that. We covered it, but not enough. But no. So the book covers everything. But if you go beyond the triad and then you're into the psychology, we went through the psychology quite a lot about why it's hard to fix your diet and yeah. why you must form a habit, that that's powerful, and a habit takes some time. We went through the kind of keto flu and some of the issues you may have in the first couple of weeks when you ironically switch to a super healthy diet, sure. like your salts may be a bit low. You know, you need to be getting potassium and magnesium and, and, and these things, uh, or you may have a challenge. And we went through a full chapter on uh, minerals and vitamins supplements. And again, we put the key ones in there, like the fish oil, the magnesium particularly. We also covered iodine and we covered a whole range of, of kind of 
you know, supplements that you don't necessarily need to take loads of supplements, but you need to be mindful that the recent study from the Department of Agriculture in the US, or I think it was around eight years ago, they showed that the mineral content, the crucial mineral content for human health in land-grown vegetables in America had fallen around 85% over 40 years. I mean, yeah. again, if you went to someone and said, minerals are really important for health from your healthy vegetables, they say, yeah. What yeah. if I told you they were down nearly 90% over the last 40 years? Do you think that'd be a problem? I think so. But no one knows this. So that's where you got to be careful that modern foods through agricultural uh, over kind of planting and over, you know, depletion of soils. It's, it's not GMOs. It's not like necessarily pesticides. It's simply met methods of, of agriculture have depleted the soil. And um, that's why you need to be careful with minerals and, and, and vitamins that the foods may not give you what they would have done. And we're not drinking well water. So well water generally brought in a load of minerals, magnesium, potassium, and, and, and iron, other things. But we don't. We drink from water purification plants now and, and even add in fluoride. So everything's changed. So <laughs> I think I'd add the vitamins and minerals uh, uh, as the extra thing. Fasting as well. So on top of eating healthy, myself and Dr. Gerber always said, if you want to do keto, please don't go keto by adding in fat. That is stupid. Go keto by being on a healthy, low carb, uh, healthy fats diet, which is our main advice, and then go into the keto space healthily by skipping meals because fasting is super good for you. You know, it's one of the mechanisms by which exercise improves neurological health and brain-derived uh, neuropathic factor, BDNF. There's a study that shows the reason or one big reason exercise transmits to brain health is because it raises beta-hydroxybutyrate, which you can raise that by fasting. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like a workout. I always say fasting is a workout where you don't have to get off your ass. Um, um, so add <laughs> fasting. Get healthy keto without adding in liquid oils and extra fats. That's yeah. not good. Yeah. And, and you get the benefits of fasting as well, which are myriad. And it's evolutionary appropriate, just like meat, fish, and eggs are. Fasting is part of our DNA. Yeah, Humans generally always went through <laughs> periods of extreme leanness. And that's kind yeah. of encoded into us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry, our, bodies know, our bodies, yeah, our bodies know how to do it in, uh, I, I always uh, use that sort of food first mantra. The most important thing is the quality of our food. And the second most important thing is the timing. The timing matters a lot too. Like you said, you can basically with just fasting alone, you can get your beta hydroxybutyrate. You can be in a, what they call a starvation ketosis and you can stimulate all of those important growth factors like the yes. brain derived neurotrophic factor, et cetera, et cetera. And it's so easy and it's free. And for me, it simplified yeah. my life. I got six kids, you got five kids. And if you skip a meal oh. yourself, like that gives you so much more time to do something else. You know, you don't have to shop for it, prepare for it, make the thing and clean up after it. I mean, it's amazing. We could, we could go on and it's, on. And I, I uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. This has been a lot of fun, but I, I thank you so much. What, what a great, uh, I, I appreciate you sharing your eat rich, live long, because going back as an author, looking at your work, you always want to change stuff. And how awesome that, you know, all the things there you didn't really want to uh, touch. And I'm at that point where I have my book that I wrote called Preventable. 
five powerful practices to avoid disease and build unshakable health. And I'm like, I'm ultra like picky. And part of, part of my problem is I, I want it to be perfect. And I just got to get yeah. this thing out. I've been in this editing phase for way too long, but I can't wait to get it out there, hopefully later this year. And I hope that I can say what you just said, that, you know, even looking back a couple years later, you're like, I, all that stuff in there, I would just keep, I would add to it, of course, you know, so how awesome. Mm. And uh, thanks again, maybe just tell, uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers, how, how can we best reach out to you? How can we follow you? Um, where do we find you? Where, where's the best places? Right. Well, no, thanks so much, Thomas. Uh, yeah. And just one quick thing, by the way, just really quick thing. In our book, we, we were in an era where Dr. Ron Rolsdale, who I have enormous respect for, I mentioned him already, he's brilliant. He was cautioning against eating too much protein. There was a bit of a fuss going on about protein excess and mTOR and cancer. So we actually hedged and we covered it, but we pulled back from kind of pushing high protein just because, in fairness, there was controversy at the time. Some good guys were, were questioning high protein and we hedged. So that's one thing now I wouldn't, uh, uh, now since then, I wouldn't worry about protein. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. Excess. Agreed. But, but that's just, there's an example of something that, well, I think we did the right thing. We were careful. We didn't want to promote something that might turn out to be not ideal. Uh, so finding me, I mean, my kind of handle is Fat Emperor. I won't tell the story of where I got that, but at Fat Emperor, E-M-P-E-R-O-R, at Fat Emperor on Twitter, I'm mainly on. And my YouTube, to be honest, if you just search engine Ivor Cummins, you'll hit my YouTube, my Facebook, and my Twitter pretty quickly. And look, I have covered in the last two years through a lot of demand and, and through personal you know, I have five kids in the future. The world's important to me in their future. I've covered a lot of COVID data. So you might see a bit about COVID here and there for sure. Uh, but go search me under heart disease, under insulin, if you want to target more the nutritional stuff. Awesome. And please, everybody go out and get his book, Eat Rich, Live Long. Uh, and just keep, keep doing what you're doing, Ivor. You're doing such a great thing and making a difference in the world. And I just, I just appreciate you. And I think for me, the biggest thing is your fresh set of eyes onto something that for me as a physician, um, too many of us don't have that sort of inquisitive nature. You have to check yourself. You got to ask questions. You know, whenever somebody asks me about this or that, I say, you know, feel free to get a second, a third, a fourth opinion. Like yeah. there's so much that we don't know. And, 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 and in my sphere, I'm comfortable saying I don't know something. It's nice to know stuff, but it's important to know mm. how much we don't know. And so always keep asking questions. You've really given a, just a huge example on how that can be so impactful. So keep asking those good questions, Ivor. And I can't wait to have you on again sometime in the future and see you in person. Hopefully one day I'll make it out there to your to Dublin. <laughs> Yeah, man, I'm not sure about Hawaii, but I love Florida and Arthur Agatston, and I've got some other great guys there. So maybe, maybe there, who, who knows? Thanks so much, yeah. Thomas, and ditto for you. Fantastic work, well, and yeah, look forward. All right, man. Thanks again. Big aloha to Ivor. Can't wait to see more of you. Aloha. 
Oh, what a pleasure that was to interview Ivor Cummins, just an amazing individual. What an astounding job he's done with the research, just synthesizing literally tomes and tomes of data, thousands of papers to come up with that devil's triangle that he did of what we need to avoid, right? The highly processed grains, the highly processed sugars and flours, and thirdly, the seed oils. And this is something that I've been talking about ad nauseum, but so awesome to hear it from a researcher who's literally poured through the data that not only has affected him and changed his life, but many, many, many others. So thank you for that work, Ivor. Keep it coming. Please, guys, follow him at The Fat Emperor. Follow him online on Twitter, Ivor Cummins. You can just Google search him. He's got a YouTube channel. I'll have the links in the show notes as well. Just an astounding individual, and he's making a difference in the world. Please get his book, of course, Eat Rich, Live Long. And please share this out. Share this with any family, friend, anybody that you think might get value from learning about these important health tips, the devil's triangle to avoid, so to speak, and how to get healthy naturally by eating real food. Oh my gosh, what a great episode. Uh, Please, please, please write a review. Remember, if you do so, I will give you a free week in the Thrive community. I'd love to see you there, so hop on over. Uh, scroll down on Apple to the bottom where it says write a review. Just type up a little something, screenshot that, send it to me at Dr. Thomas Hemingway, and I will get you in there. Until next time, guys, a big aloha.